This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, host of MedLife with Dr. Horton on CMAJ Podcasts. I'm a general internist and associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine and the director of the Allen Kloss Health Humanities Program at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Jason Brooks. Jason holds a PhD from the University of Queensland, Australia in population health with a special focus on kinesiology and human performance. For the last 20 years, he's worked as a mental performance coach, collaborating with high performers in diverse fields, from elite athletes, musicians, tactical law enforcement officers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs. But his most extensive experience happens to be with doctors. And Jason is joining me here in our sound studio at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be here. So the first question I want to ask you is, how is it that you became interested in applying your skills to working with doctors? Well, it starts with a mentor of mine, Dr. Cal Botterill. Uh, he's a legend in the field of performance psychology. As a matter of fact, he is in the Hall of Fame in our province of Manitoba in that role. And he had been teaching a, a high-performance course at University of Winnipeg for years. And someone from the Faculty of Medicine contacted him, I think it was 11 years ago, 2009 or 8, I believe is what it was. And they were running some simulation experiments with a patient safety group. They wanted to see whether or not some of these ideas from the performance psychology realm might have relevance to help people in high-pressure, high-stakes simulation scenarios perform more effectively. So Cal was invited to sort of be the experimental piece of it, if you will. He adapted a, a, a course to fit the needs of physicians, bringing some of the performance psych stuff to it. And on the heels of that, based on the feedback we got, there was a bit of buzz about the fact that, you know, there might be something here. Flash forward 11 years later and all the things we've been able to do, and, and here we are. So modest beginnings, but it's been extremely rewarding to get to this point. So as I said in the intro, you work with a really diverse population of individuals. But can you talk for a moment about how doctors are the same as all high performers, but also about how they're different? Sure. I mean, I always like to tell people because in early days, fair enough, we would get asked the question, well, you know, I understand that elite athletes or police officers or, you know, business executives, I can understand how some of these ideas might have merit in those contexts, but how are you so sure that they may overhear? And the easy answer is, well, unless you're made of some different makeup, <laughs> if you have a heart, if you have a mind... Uh, the ideas are going to have some merit because, in essence, we are stripping away context. Now, you have to know the context. You have to come in and learn the uniqueness of each performance realm. What are the challenges? What makes it different for a physician versus an athlete and what have you? But at the end of the day, in the moments that matter, when it's high stakes, when it's high pressure, 
when it's in some situations do or die, the experience at a human level is the same. Now, we would not compare what it must be like in your field to have life and death in your hands with, say, an athlete. But that person who's in that penultimate moment, you know, the goaltender who has to stop the puck to win the game or win the gold medal, one can appreciate what it might feel like to be in that person's shoes. You know, the, the stress effects that would be coursing through their body. And so the same exists for physicians in so many of the instances and moments that they face on a day-to-day basis. And so how are they different? I think obviously uh, the demands are quite unique in medicine when you think of the sheer volume of workload, when you think of the pressures to perform. I always like to tell folks, look, if I have a bad day in what I do, people are disengaged in a, in a presentation I give or a podcast that I'm doing. You know, the ego takes a hit, but I'll be okay. You know, a bad day in the field of medicine for physicians who, you know, are tasked with really difficult decisions that have to be made under time pressure and with great consequences, it's just greater. And I don't care what anybody says. That is unique in and of itself. I also think what makes it unique is in spite of that, there seems to be a little emphasis in the training, per se, on helping equip people specifically to meet the human factors and the human challenges. And I've I've really enjoyed seeing that shift over my 10 years working in medicine. Uh, you add another factor that makes it unique is the shift work aspect. You know, anybody can Google the top 10 ways to manage stress. And some form of those lists will include exercise, sleep, proper nutrition, etc. Well, those three factors are really tough for people who work copious amounts of hours, shift work, You can't lock yourself in on a set sleep routine and what have you. So those are just a few of the things I think that collectively make the challenges that I think that physicians face in terms of sustainable high performance and wellness even more formidable, to say the least. One thing you make me think of as you talk about the ways in which medical culture is somewhat unique, Are there forces in medicine that you think unconsciously uh, discourage people from using services like yours? Well, I mean, certainly there's always this idea historically when you think of the culture of medicine and ideas that come to mind. I mean, come early and stay late and sacrifice everything and, and this sort of noble sense of what it is and what it means to be that. Having said that, if we look at the research on sustainability, on productivity, on effective decision-making, on all the things that would we would equate with performing at our best in what is a very important role, those old ideas actually are counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad to see there's a bit of a culture shift in that way. But to your point, there's an underbelly of that that, that still exists, sort of that, that old-school mentality. And to your point especially if you look at the level of learner, you know, the person who is looking to seek out additional supports and resources, there could be some trepidation because of how would I be perceived? Mm. And so that might exist at the staff or senior level as well. You know, what might my colleagues think, you know, and, and it brings us back to almost a sense of shame. So people are in a culture that it sometimes feels like to access what I would need to be my best to deliver my best and sustain my best, both in my life and in my job, there's risk involved in that. And so I'm happy to see or I'm beginning to see and feel some of that is changing and for the better. Because to me, the strong 
person would be the one to push mm-hmm. through that noise and get what they want to get. And as a result of doing so, it would be in a much better position to, again, sustain and perform at their highest level. So, Jason, when you meet with a physician to work with them, what are the most common attitudinal errors that you tend to see in people working with you for the first time? I would like to answer that in a different way, perhaps. I mean, what are the things that I've observed that that keep people stuck might be another way mm-hmm. of addressing that. I think fear of failure mm. is a huge issue, obviously, when you consider, again, the performance context, what is expected, and the costs of failure. That's certainly something that can tie people up. And you can see how that manifests. We try too hard. We overextend ourselves. We work ourselves to the bone, which ironically puts us in a state that makes us more susceptible Mm. potentially to failures and setbacks and what have you. I think not setting boundaries is another big one for physicians because that kind of dovetails into managing and, and, and being more effective with one's time. Um, if one can set a few boundaries for themselves to ensure, and by definition, someone who has boundaries is someone who is more in control of their time and their energy. And I hear so many people come to me and say, I just feel like a pinball in the game that is my own life. This is bouncing from this and that and all these demands and all these pressures. And I have no control seemingly over my schedule. So once that mindset creeps in, you know, we start to feel even more a diminished sense of mm-hmm. enjoyment and, and control overall in what we do. And so helping people break through some of that to set boundaries that might be uncomfortable, but that in doing so allow them to reclaim some of the life's blood that otherwise can get sucked into the vortex. I think another one is, if I haven't said it already, is dealing with setbacks and failures and even the anticipation of it. You know, I've, I've worked with people who are so afraid of the inevitable setbacks and errors and such that can occur that it absolutely ties them up in performance. And again, by extension, ironically, could put them in position to be more susceptible to making the things mm-hmm. they're trying so hard to, uh, to avoid, that being some sort of an error or setback. Those are some of the key things that come to my mind. I mean, all roads lead to balance, which is a term that you know most people like to roll their eyes with, uh, myself included. People who work the amount of hours that you do, this is not a job that's conducive to traditional mm-hmm. conceptions of balance. To me, balance is more about being mindful of the time and the energy I do have. When it's all time to work, I'm all in and focused there. When it's all time to be away from work, I have to get good at learning to transition and shift my attention and energy to be fully present for the times I am away. And on the one hand, because there's so much fatigue and and, and what have you in medicine, that can be challenging. But I would suggest to you it's even more important for physicians in many other performance realms because you're fatigued quite often and then because as well the downtime you have for yourself is quite short in consideration to this is not a nine to five lifestyle so being able to optimize the time you have by shifting your attention and energy effectively is is another thing i see people struggle with and that we work really hard to help them try and alleviate so let's focus in on that for a minute So if I were seeing you as a physician struggling with some of those transition issues, you know, being able to leave work at the end of the day psychologically, 
where would we start? What are some of the kinds of pieces of advice or the kind of work that you do with me to help me cope with achieving good transitions? I think the first thing is we have to prepare to transition. You know, when you've been dealing with so many important tasks all day in the role of physician, to think that somehow miraculously when the clock says I'm free to go, I can turn off the cognitive switch is, is crazy. So I think we have to appreciate that I have to actually prepare myself to sink into or transition my attention effectively to my personal time. So there's various things you can do. I've heard people don't leave the office until they allow themselves to close all their devices, sit down, jot a few key things that they need to do tomorrow, and by virtue of sort of offloading that cognitively and having it visually in front of me, it allows me to then detach from it until the next day. It's like I've almost given myself permission, my mind permission, to not have to think about it. Other people who go home, let's say, to busy personal lives, families, children, what have you. And all those folks can't wait to see you. They kind of like you, you know. They're really excited. And how many physicians who will listen to this can appreciate the moment when you come home and, you know, kids and loved ones are, are pining to get some attention. And in that moment, you weren't prepared to give them that initial homecoming that, that you would like to give and they would like to receive and you know it and they feel it. And now there's guilt on top of the fact that I feel so friggin' exhausted. And so you go, wow, who wants to feel that every day? Nobody. Five minutes of preparation before you step into the house, turning off your car, transitioning in terms of, okay, doing a mental catalog. Here's the things that are still weighing on my mind. What can I do with these things? What must I do to compartmentalize them, to temporarily put them offline such that even if it's for the first three minutes, I can show up and give fully to my family or whoever's waiting for me the energy that I want to give to them. If I can be disciplined and conscious and ready to do that for three minutes and then I get back to my busy self doing all the other, other tasks, nevertheless, that micro victory for you that feels so good, ah, you know, here's one thing I can absolutely control mm -hmm. being on top of today in a good way. I can make sure I'm ready to give and receive that first, you know, little bit when I get home in a way that makes me feel good and makes my family feel good. These small things like that help us create, you know, the experience that we want. Instead of if we just drive there and show up, in that state, tired, overloaded, still dealing with the residue of the day, the odds of us morphing instantly into fully present is, is quite low. Hmm. I've heard other people say that there's two unique stories that I really like. Um, one person on their way home, they'll tell their significant other, I'm not sure I'm advocating to lie to your partner, um, but they will always give themselves a half hour cushion. Hmm. And what they do with that half hour is they stop at their favorite Starbucks they read the paper mm -hmm. and the, the trade-off is, I guess the trade-off for lying, but the benefit to the significant others and family is, is that by virtue of doing that, by the time they arrive home, they're fully there. They have done the processing and they've set themselves up such that from moment one, I can be fully engaged in my personal time. And so this is what I mean overall in terms of 
managing the transition effectively such that the precious downtime you do have, you can make sure that you're maximizing every moment of it. Contrast that with coming home. First of all, failing the the, the homecoming mm-hmm. moment, <laughs> then continuing to perseverate on, ruminate, spin, process the stuff of the day, stay up late doing that, get a lousy sleep, wake up the next day, rinse and repeat. And you can see if that becomes the pattern in the cycle. Well, here's another way in which, you know, the trend is going towards potential burnout. If that becomes the way it is for years and years. Another thing you spoke about a few minutes ago was the idea of rehearsal. And as you pointed out, this is not something that we talk about during the course of our training. I mean, it may be that more procedurally based specialists do, surgeons, etc. But those of us who, you know, are more in the cognitive specialties where procedures don't tend to take up a lot of our time, don't tend to be exposed to this concept in general. Can you talk about how physicians can use rehearsal to achieve high performance? Sure. I mean, I think the the things I always like to suggest are there's things you can be doing ahead of something that you know might be intense, might be something that you don't feel particularly confident or ready for, etc. So because I'm aware of that in advance, I recognize, hey, I probably would not be at my best under those conditions. So why don't I use the sim center that I was born with, the one that floats between my ears, and put myself in that situation or, or, or interaction, if it's something like that, a, an interpersonal communication, it could be tough. Put myself in that space, if you will, conceptually in my mind ahead of time. And first, I want to observe how would I react? Let's be brutally honest with myself. You know, and I want to see and feel the nerves or the anxiousness. I want to see and feel myself shrink down or my tone of voice change or my skin temperature start to rise, like the signs of stress, because that's going to give me the information that in doing the rehearsal part now, I sort of need to to do the opposite of. You know, if I've shrunken down and my voice goes really small and meek and timid, and that's not what's ideal, I have to see that and then envision myself bringing the exact Mm -hmm. opposite. And so to do it in advance of potentially stressful situations is the mental repetitions that trains the mind to be ready for the intensity of feelings I might be experiencing because it's those intensity of feelings that ultimately interferes with being able to perform at a cognitive level to my full potential. If you can be better in control of the emotions, you know, you have a much greater chance of accessing all of your cognitive skills. So doing some rehearsal, it inoculates us in essence. And it's not as though we're eradicating those feelings. Mm -hmm. No, we're being ready to meet those feelings in a way that allows us to quickly bring that arousal down and regain focus here now. So again, the process would be anticipate, envision something that you could come across that if you were to, to be in that situation now again could make it difficult for you to feel and think and perform optimally. Sit down, get relaxed, play it through, collect the data. Wow, here's where my thoughts start to veer off track. Wow, here's the first crush of emotion that comes up. I thought it was in the moment, but in matter of fact, it happens much earlier than that. Collect the data. Now, play that scene through again with as much vivid attention to detail. I mean, if there's some sort of a a kinesthetic element to what you're doing, a procedural thing, 
will get up out of your chair and, and actually mimic the movements and manipulating of tools or instruments or whatever it is that you might be doing. And so the more times you do this, and studies will show this, the mind does not necessarily differentiate too well between that which is quote-unquote real versus that which we are just perceiving. And so there is an absolute observable, measurable training effect just from rehearsal strategies alone that make us better in the moments where it's going to matter. So that's the process of rehearsal that I would suggest for people to use. And it can be used for anything that you want to develop a better response to. You come home after a long day, you're tired, and you know your significant other asks you what you want for dinner. And it's very easy to get frustrated, not because you're mad about being asked that. It's just we got nothing to give. And so in that state, the odds that we will respond how we want to are lower. You know, we might say something flippant or whatever. And then again, ugh, I missed an opportunity here that I could have responded better. I can be readier for that. When I'm coming home and I'm aware that I'm tired and stressed and anxious, that now is a signal that says, oof. Mm. I better take five minutes in the driveway <laughs> before I go through the door. And so being ready for those moments and rehearsing and seeing myself respond optimally is a great way to increase the likeliness in real time that I will. One of the things I find myself thinking about as you talk about that is really, and this is something that I'm really interested in along with um, the clinical applications of mindfulness, but it's really that our training so often tries to detach us from an awareness of our emotions and an awareness of what's happening in our bodies so that we can just plod through the day. And what I hear as you talk is some of the work that we, many of us find ourselves doing later in our careers is re-establishing that awareness. You know, what does stress feel like in my body? Where, what is the first signal that happens for me when the train is about to veer off the track so that you can make that correction at the five degree mark versus when you're already headed for a crash and it's too late? Totally. You know, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of people will try to think themselves out of an emotional state. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard a comedian say one time, you know, if someone is in a, a hyperactive, angry, frustrated state, whatever it might be. And of course, everybody's natural reaction is to tell someone, just calm down, just yeah. relax. And this comedian said, in the history of telling someone in that state to <laughs> calm down or relax, nobody has ever calmed down or relaxed. There's an emotion that's yeah. steering the show right there. You know, the, the basis of it in terms of neuroscience, you know, the idea that the amygdala serves as the smoke detector. Mm -hmm. You know, it's constantly scanning your environment, assessing signs of risk and danger. And when we get into situations that are high stress, where there's a lot on the line, both for others and for ourselves, our ego, what it might mean, and of course, the situation, patient safety and getting a good outcome, that's a lot. I would suggest to you that it's pretty normal that the old nervous system would be on high alert. And when it is, if the amygdala reacts too strongly and secretes emotions that, again, would be associated with more of the, the fight, flight, or freeze type response, at that point, the idea that cognitively we're going to steer ourselves away, yeah. best of luck with that. Yeah. It's to your point, the strategy is if I'm aware mm -hmm. of those feelings that are coming up, and if I'm aware of them, I can look beneath them and say, where is this coming from? 
what is the voice right now that's speaking to me? More often than not, it's just the voice of fear. Mm -hmm. What is fear's purpose? It's to keep you mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. It wants to keep you alive. It's going off what it's interpreting inside of you. Yeah. There's danger somewhere. And then when it gets cued into what your percep perception of the danger is, whatever the situation we're about to step into, then its best way to protect you that it knows of is to say, let's get the heck out of here. That's yeah. its job. So now in that moment, you have all these emotions that are coming up, making it difficult mm -hmm. to think and make decisions effectively. We're not going to think ourselves from that. It's what you said. Be aware. Bring down the arousal through other means. Physiologically, for example, a few deep breaths. Mm -hmm. Once that physiological arousal starts to diminish slightly, now we're triggering the more parasympathetic response. The mind's going, oh, it's okay to relax now. Mm -hmm. There must not be as an imminent threat as we once thought. And as soon as that starts to de-intensify a little bit, now you can access mm -hmm. the cognitive skills, you know, the executive yeah. function of your Talking brain. Bottom up. Exactly. Yeah. So you can do it two ways. You can prepare in advance to be ready such that your mind and body have a sense of when mm -hmm. the you-know-what hits the fan. In fact, you know, I was ready for this. My mm -hmm. mind knows what to do. Yeah. Or if I can't, if I find myself taken aback in those moments, utilize some physiological techniques such as the breathing skills to bring down that arousal and then that's the other way of accessing mm. the cognitive centers as you just referred to. I want to go back to something you said earlier that I really love. So we talk a lot from different angles on this podcast about burnout and of course we know that burnout is a public health crisis in physicians right now. Um, we know that the primary drivers of burnout are system issues, organizational drivers. But what I always worry gets lost in that statement is that there are still ways that we can regain some locus of control in the situation. So I want to just hear your thoughts a little bit in terms of the role of the individual in dealing with burnout. Central. Yeah. Absolutely central. Um, there's no question that the system has issues and flaws that make it difficult um, for human performers to sustain a level of health and proper focus and, and, and the things that obviously working those amounts of hours and the pressures can take away from us. The key here, though, is if, if I've met with a hundred physicians, and uh, certainly met with more than that, and asked all of them, in spite of those system issues, how many people here can say that they are absolutely doing all that they can from a personal responsibility side point? And nobody can say that. Uh, and, and that's not an indictment on – I understand fully. I've been working with physicians for 10 years why it's so difficult to do things such as consistent self-care and the kinds of things that we know are the ultimate buffers – against the kinds of conditions that, you know, people are thrust with. And so for people who are often in a state that makes it very difficult to do the things that keep them above water, the challenge is you're in a field that needs to be disciplined in that way more than anybody. Yeah. You know, and I, I find it's small things. Like it's no different if you look at, let's say, elite sport. So you go, okay, you take the best hockey players in the world, whatever the top five are. And you go, what separates them from very good players? These are exceptional, separates very good from exceptional. It's not much, Jill. Mm -hmm. 
a 1% difference in speed or accuracy mm-hmm. or these things at that level is magnified. Yeah. A 1% improvement day to day in terms of managing our mm-hmm. stress, taking care of ourselves, yeah. finding moments to detach, being more mindful in, in situations that are causing us to react in strong ways. A 1% improvement in your day as a physician is massive. Mm-hmm. And so I just encourage people to do better at Mm -hmm. what they can. And I I hesitate to use the word more because for people who feel overextended and you tell them, here's one more thing to do, it's defeating. Yeah. This is not about doing more. This is about recognizing that if I engage in certain habits, in certain behaviors, in certain routines, this is how I reclaim all of that which I really am feeling I don't have enough of more time, more energy, better engagement when I'm away from work, better focus when I'm at work, less stress, et cetera. And so, you know, I can illustrate with a small example if I could in terms Mm -hmm. of a boundary. So here's one that someone could set. I had a physician that I know quite well contacted me not that long ago. And it was similar to what I said to you earlier. This was the proverbial pinball in the machine, Mm -hmm. you know, that was her Mm -hmm. life type of feeling. And she just felt so up against it, you know, and she had pressures at home that were important to her. She has a young family. She loves two beautiful kids that she wants to spend time with. She's in a particular medical specialty that is extremely intensive and demanding. There's all kinds of performance pressures there. And so you have these competing forces and both of which at times she felt like a failure when she's enjoying time with her kids, which is the most important thing in a world. But of course, you're worrying and wondering, what are my colleagues doing? And mm-hmm. what interesting cases are they working on? And are people getting ahead? And, you know, we're human. We have these mm-hmm. thoughts. Conversely, you know, you can appreciate when she's at work, worrying and wondering about not spending enough time with her family and what will her kids think and all of this stuff. So you have guilt or resentment in one of the two roles of your life. And this sort of becomes the baseline through mm-hmm. which much of your day is felt. And when our attention is locked in that, you can see again, this is the, this is like gasoline for yeah. the burnout fire. Yes. So there's nothing we were going to be able to resolve in a conversation, but I challenged her because underlying that sense of feeling stuck, you get caught in that stuck narrative mm-hmm. and it's very easy how quickly that becomes. And there's nothing I yes. can do. There's yes. literally, you know, you don't get it. You don't, there's nothing at all. I have no time. I, okay. I get that. Let's see if we can raise our standards there ever so slightly. Let's see if there's some wiggle room there that it is the voice of resistance in your head is making us believe is yeah. not there. So I said, what's something that's pissing you off today? And she had some, she said, Oh, you know, I got this email for a monthly departmental meeting that I dread going because it's at seven in the morning way on the other side of the city where I live. And it's the one window that she gets with her kids. She starts her day at nine and her colleagues know that, but nevertheless, this is when the meeting is. And so you can appreciate every single time she's heading to that meeting, angry, resentful. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the way now, and it's not just the way she starts her day, Already just getting the email, she's feeling that. Yes, yes. On the day before, when she knows she's going to miss seeing her kids, she's feeling that. So already there's this cocktail of of negative emotion. So I said, okay, well, is this a mandatory 
meeting? And she said, well, they're not mandatory. I mean, people do miss them, but, you know, you're expected to be there. And I said, okay, well, let's miss the next one. And in that moment, she reacted so strong. Said, oh, I, I couldn't miss that. I, not me. I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. I said, stop. Yeah. Stop right there. In this moment right now, the thing that you feel you don't have any control over, you have ultimate control over. Yes. What's preventing you from exercising that is your own discomfort in setting a boundary. Yes. And yes. you know how, how boundaries feel, Jill? Yeah. They feel icky yeah. and awkward <laughs> and uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. But they sustain us. Yes. And I said, stick with me on this. Let's agree to do this. And I said, here's how your next several days are going to go. Because it was several days before this meeting. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to have moments where you, you think you should go. You're going to start rationalizing why, well, you know, this is the one I should go to. I'll miss the next one. It's like all of this is going to come. Why? Because maybe we don't want to disappoint people. Maybe we're worried about how we'll be perceived, etc. But that now is you getting in the way of protecting the time and energy that you yeah. so crave. Yeah. So she did it. And I said, how did it feel? And she said, well, I felt how you set up in the lead up. But I'll tell you what, at 7 o'clock when I was playing with my kids and not going to this thing and hating my life for it, it was worth it. Yeah. And now the code has been cracked. Now yes. the mind cannot say, yeah. adopt fully to the narrative, there's nothing I can do. Yes. Jill, this is one micro yeah. moment in time mm -hmm. that she reclaimed for herself and in doing so showed herself she can do more yes. of that. I like to make the joke, now she's addicted to setting boundaries and saying no. <laughs> but realistically, yeah. it started a chain of events yes. where now she's looking at other things more consciously. And when the instant reaction comes up and says, well, I could never mm -hmm. not do this or, or offload that or, or not appear here, she catches herself. That, that voice is now a signal that says, mm -hmm. oh, hang on a exactly. sec. Yeah. There's some fear here. What's beneath that? Let's just do the analyses. And if we if we come to the conclusion, no, this is a, a can't miss or a have to do it, fine. But there's plenty of opportunities I'm sure that we'll discover that more often than not, I probably have more power and more control than I at times think and or that I feel comfortable exercising. Mm -hmm. I love how you frame that. And I think the one point that you make that is is so important and relatable you make many but this idea you know the first time you set a boundary is usually the worst and then as you point out there's kind of this you know you've rehearsed it now you but you've gone beyond rehearsing you've actually done it so it does begin to get simpler as you say and and i think very positively affirming as well it feels good when we realize, as you say, that we do have some control over some things. And the other thing you said that I think is so important, you know, this idea if we can make life 1% better. And the other way I sometimes look at that is, and I, I look at it sometimes through the, the lens of learning some of these new cognitive skills and applying them, you know, maybe one day it's 1% better, maybe the next day it's no percent better, but maybe another day a really difficult moment is 50% more tolerable. Maybe there's a day when your day feels 80% better as a result. So it's it's this idea, isn't it, that, you know, we think these are small things, but just as you say, the cumulative effect and, and that power that we feel when we realize that we do have some control. There are, the system has to change. And I think that's what 
people where they get stuck in this loop. You know, it's the system. It's the system. Of course, the system is dysfunctional. Of course, the system is the the root of a lot of our pain and suffering. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect. So and so in in asking for us to work on our own performance and framing it in the way that you do a human performance lens, it doesn't let the system off the hook. It just lets us say there are also things that I can do that will be helpful to me because sure. if we're waiting for that system change, we're, it's going to not be here by the end of our careers. Oh, enough. Jill, you're bang on. Yeah. And that's, that's a sentiment I share yeah. and, and warn people, you know, don't wait for it. You know, yeah. there's a great quote by, um, Carl Sagan, the, the original person who did the Cosmos show, and it's this idea. He says, help isn't coming from afar to save us from ourselves. And that resonates with me when mm -hmm. I think of medicine. And that's not to say that there aren't a ton of people behind the scenes working diligently to try and improve it. Of course there is. But systems move and change at a glacial Glacier. pace. Yes. And so, as you say... If my only strategy is to wait and expect for it to save me from the conditions, number one, that's going to make for a, a very difficult and challenging existence. Number two, you might be horribly disappointed that in the time that you're in this role, there perhaps isn't the significant changes that one would like to see. And so if we choose to be in this role, which everybody who's in it does, it's an important and noble role at that, we have to be better at ensuring that we're doing our part. And that's not to say that we're, again, taking the system, taking them off the hook, not at all. But too often I find that an, a resistance internally that says, well, there's nothing I can do because the system needs to change. That to me, again, is that mental block that's really just protecting us from the disappointment that we think we have no control over our circumstances. Yeah. And if we allowed ourselves to push through that a little bit and say, honestly, look, there are things I can do. I was speaking in an event in Vancouver in October. It was for, it was urology. That's what it was. There was a physician there. He's an anesthesiologist, retired now. And when he left his, his job, he had all kinds of health issues. And his physician, his personal physician, was going to put him on all kinds of medications and what have you. And he said, you know give me an opportunity to see if I can self-correct this, you know, eat healthy, get exercise, etc. And I should add to it, there was another reason why he wanted to do this. He was up for an insurance renewal. And, mm. and I forget what age he was turning, but it was going to be one where, you know, the, the rates yeah. were probably going to go up significantly if he had a poor health check. So he went through this process and, you know, he got the gold star bill of health, you know, because he changed everything. But I liked in his presentation because he drilled it down to small 1% things we're talking about that people can do that actually make a big difference if they're done consistently. Mm -hmm. And because he had local knowledge of the hospitals where these folks worked, he was able to say he showed a bunch of statistics, you know, the, the amount of exercise required daily to, you know, make an improvement against cardiovascular risk and, and some of these things. And he said, let me tell you what that means for all of you. He said, you know that stairwell on the west side? It's three flights, you know, goes near the cafeteria or whatever. And they said, yeah, yeah, I know that. If you walked up and down that four times in a week, <laughs> you would hit the marker for making a difference, a positive difference in the long-term trajectory of your cardiovascular health. 
And people were stunned because we assume Mm -hmm. the only way this is going to work is if I join CrossFit and spin class and all the rest. And you have to go there five days a week and my schedule doesn't allow it. And I'm too tired. And it's like, we think to the max and then that keeps us from taking any action whatsoever. It's those extremes of thinking that so often characterize physician personalities as well, right? What a beautiful example of how that kind of cognitive stance that can be adaptive in a large portion of our lives can really be maladaptive when it comes to helping ourselves. Sure. Jason, there's one more thing I want to ask you to talk about, and it's the concept of buffers. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, particularly as it relates to burnout, let's say. I'm fond of the quote, and it escapes me who did this, but someone once said, we don't get burned out from what we do. We get burned out from losing sight of why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very strong statement, especially in the context of medicine, because people could push back and say, I get burned out from what I do. I worked 140 hours last week and I can understand that. But if that is the conditions with which we currently are tasked to work under, and if that is the conditions with which you are aware of on a day-to-day basis awaits you when you get there, then we have a responsibility to be readier for those conditions. And part of the way in which we stave off the conditions sucking our life's blood out of us is to make sure we have an answer to the question. In those moments where I'm feeling my lowest, most fatigued, most stressed, most imposter-like, etc., do I have an answer to the question, why the F do I do this? Because if in that moment I can shift my attention towards that, and if that sense of purpose and meaning in what I do is 1% stronger in force than all the challenges that I'm wrestling with in that moment, I will persevere and I will be okay. And I think that is an important thing to check ourselves on because you think of it just in terms of thoughts. You know, there's various statistics some people secrete between twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day. So if I'm in a fatigued state, if I'm in a high-stress work environment, if I constantly feel overextended, how often are the thoughts I'm secreting supporting hmm. the person I want to be, the way I want to feel? No, it's it's reminding me of all the things that are going wrong, that are difficult, that are stressful, that are burdensome, that are you know, keeping me from being more fully who I want to be. And so... I have to be mindful of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes where the cynicism arises, and rightly so, is where people feel that an organization that is rife with dysfunction and setting people up for failure, when the organization comes back and says, you know, here's resilience training, here's mindfulness training, here's an hour with a coach. I always think that that's one of the real pain points Mm -hmm. for people. And I think that's also something that we want to distinguish. Again, we're not letting organizations off the hook. We're not letting institutions and universities say, well, this is the solution. It isn't the solution. It's not binary. It, but it's exactly, but it's again part of controlling what we can control. What is the goal here? Some of the goal has to be to make our lives more livable, more tolerable, as we were saying earlier, while we wait for that glacial pace change to begin to affect and us. And I'll tell you, when you begin to practice being more conscious, when you begin to take small, intentional, and disciplined actions day to day, 
it does change dramatically. And again, dramatically can mean dramatically. It can also mean dramatically relative to the conditions and the time loads and all the stuff. As we said, 1% improvement to someone who works 140 hours a week is huge. Mm -hmm. That makes it feel like they have a bit more of a life. Jason, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been a, just a lovely conversation. Thank you. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Jason Brooks. Jason holds a PhD from the University of Queensland, Australia in population health with a special focus on kinesiology and human performance. And he has been coaching doctors on sustainable high performance for the last 20 years. If you'd like to hear more podcasts in this series, you can find them as part of CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating. This podcast was made possible in part by the support of the Alan Kloss Health Humanities Program at the University of Manitoba. I'm Dr. Gillian Horton. Thank you for listening. Thank you.